This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. And I am here with um, probably the most exciting guest for me that I have yet had on this podcast. I'm like, a little bit <laughs> having a moment over here, but let me read his official bio. Uh, Dan Harris is an Emmy award-winning journalist and the co-anchor of ABC's Weekend Editions of Good Morning America. He is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, 10% Happier and Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. He went on to launch the 10% Happier podcast, which is amazing, and an app called 10% Happier. He lives in New York with his wife, Bianca, and their son, Alexander, and their three cats. So welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Nice to meet you virtually. Yeah, it's awesome. So let me um, tell you a little bit about uh, our our history that you don't yet know. Um, <laughs> you uh, are in my book, actually, you're in the acknowledgement. So I only acknowledged a few people, most of them are actually dead. Um, but you were one of the live people. And I said, Dan Harris, author of 10% Happier for bringing practicality and humor to the journey into the mind. And uh, it was so 10% happier is, was such a big book for me because my dad, although I didn't know it at the time until you taught me is a Jew boo, a Jewish <laughs> Buddhist. And he left, he grew up in the Bronx. He left New York city. He moved to the backside of a mountain in Colorado wow. with into a cabin with no running water, no electricity, nothing with a motor <laughs> until I was born. And he had a, he had to buy a chainsaw to cut wood, to keep the cabin warm. And um, just, completely sort of hermited himself to meditate and to live on a mountaintop. And that's where he is now almost 50 years later. And um, when I was growing up, meditation was such a big thing in my house. Like my parents literally meditated a lot. And my mom still sits for like an hour and a half a day. And I remember thinking as most kids do, okay, well, I'm going to try to learn this too. And they mistakenly told me that it was about turning off your mind or being of no mind. And mm. it wasn't. And so I actually became allergic to meditation. I just thought this is total crap. This is bullshit. Like no way, hate it. And I'm failing at it. Don't like to fail at anything. And I found your book. I was actually in LaGuardia airport coming home from a business trip and the title was so good, caught me. And I picked it up and I was like, all right. And then I found out it was about meditation and I was admittedly a little bit resistant. But then uh, you went on to say like, actually coming back, having the mind wander and coming back is the work. You framed it as exercise for me. And it was, it was profound in my life. So thank you very much. I'm really, uh, thank you for saying all of that. And uh, that means a lot to me because I mean, that really was one of the most important things I was trying to do and I'm still trying to do, which is to make this practice, which is encrusted with so many cultural cliches and um, sort of poor marketing over the years, um, misconceptions, pernicious misconceptions around the necessity to clear the mind, which is impossible. One of my big hopes was that I could convince people, no, 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 actually this is, simple secular exercise for the brain. It is doable. There's a lot of scientific evidence behind it. Give it a shot. That's so great. And now of course my parents are thankful too because they are very happy that I found the tool of meditation <laughs> and slowed myself down a little bit. So that's just great. So I'm sure that you say it all the time, but would you mind just telling your story? Sure. Uh, no, I don't mind. Um, I just briefly, um, I'll tell the brief version of it. I was um, always skeptical about meditation to the extent that I even considered it, which was limited. Um, I, like you, had a parent. I, my parents were hippies, and my they signed me up for a yoga class when I was in kindergarten, which I hated. And, and the teacher didn't like that I was wearing tough skins. You know those like. So they were not kind of jeans. They were kind of like jeans, but not quite. Anyway, they were called tough skins. She didn't like that I was wearing those. So I had to take them off and do the yoga in my underwear, which really created a lifelong aversion to anything touchy feely or hippie, uh, hippy dippy. So uh, I, I was pretty hostile at baseline to meditation. But then uh, there was a 
what felt unfortunate, but in hindsight, quite fortunate series of events where I um, had a panic attack on, on the air on Good Morning America. And then after that, um, went to a shrink who was trying to figure out why it had this panic attack. And one of the questions he asked was, do you do drugs? And I admitted that I did. And uh, the backstory there is I had spent a lot of time after 9-11 as an ambitious young correspondent uh, for ABC News in, in war zones all over the Middle East and um, had gotten depressed didn't know I was depressed and then blindly started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. And even though I, I would, my drug use was not, um, terribly intense. It was enough, according to this doctor to change my brain chemistry and give me this panic attack. So I quit doing drugs, um, started seeing the sh shrink on the regular and it was through him and a whole variety of other circumstances that I, I write about a lot in my book and I probably, I, I don't need to, I'll spare you all the details right now. I ultimately landed on meditation um, as something that would help me manage uh, this voice in my head. I, I had never really realized that I, that we all have this kind of inner dialogue that's going on all the time, this nonstop conversation that if we broadcast aloud, you know, you'd get locked up. You know, it's just a, it's wild. Um, and when you're unaware of this voice that's, you know, constantly hurling you into the future or into back into the past, instead of being aware of what's happening right now and constantly, you know, criticizing yourself and judging yourself and comparing yourself to other people. When you don't have any visibility into this conversation in your head, it owns you, you know, you're just, you know, the, every thought that marches through your consciousness is like, as my medita meditation teacher says, it's like a, a tiny dictator that you just act out. You know, there's no buffer between, you know, whatever, some stimulus in your mind and your automatic reaction to it. Um, and um, so, so to me, see, you know, the, seeing that reality and then seeing that meditation was a way to help you kind of break the spell so that you could have some distance between you and your thoughts. And then seeing that there's a ton of scientific evidence that shows that, you know, it can change your psychology, change your physiology, change the structure of your brain. I just, uh, my resistance crumbled and I started to do it and it's made a big difference for me. And, and now I can't shut up about it. I love that so much. And I, I personally, obviously appreciate it. Um, one of the things, you know, in people's journey, so my work is really focused around helping people get back in control of their relationship with alcohol, sort of whatever that means for them, right? Not a black and white journey, just if that means um, abstinence, that means abstinence, but actually looking at your thoughts. And it's very much science-based and grace-led, which I know for me, meditation has helped with both of those aspects, both to be more curious about what's happening instead of just accepting the the voice in my head saying, oh, I need a drink for this, or I'm, I'm stressed, or I need to relax, and to be very compassionate with myself. And I am, one of the things that in the science specifically was so profound for me in your book is, you know, work about actually growing brain matter, like growing certain parts of the brain, and specifically in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part that shuts off during a craving, whether it's for drugs or alcohol or anything else. And so this is literally almost like the key to overcoming cravings. And, and that's been my experience. There's a great scientist who, if you haven't talked to him for your show, I highly recommend you do, named Dr. Judson Brewer, who's done, and you're, you're nodding your head, you've heard of him. Um, he is, he's kind of bounced around. He was at Yale and then he was at the University of um, Massachusetts Medical School, and now he's at Brown. Uh, incredibly smart guy, decades, decades long meditation practice, intense meditation practice. And he's a, so he's a neuroscientist, but he's also a psychiatrist who treats people with addiction. He wrote a book called The Craving Mind, and it's all about how meditation can be used to sort of um, 
short circuit these addictive loops in our heads. And, and that can be addiction to, you know, he treats patients who are addicted to alcohol, binge eaters. He considers anxiety a sort of, you know, an addiction to worry. Uh, he's, um, and, and again, there is, a, there is a significant amount of science here that shows that, just as you said, that, that you can use meditation to kind of, it's not a panacea, it's not a silver bullet, but it can really help with addictions. Judd's done a lot of work around smoking cessation. Um, he's done a lot of work with uh, people addicted to um, uh, opioids, opiates. And so it's, it's, um, it's really compelling. That's phenomenal. And I know that you, you know, cut back or stopped drinking, but it was not at all to do with traditional reasons. And I, and I actually think a lot of our, my listeners could relate to that because there's so many people who I would see it on a spectrum, right? There's, there's people who, you know, drink occasionally at a wedding and then there's people who drink every single day and, and they're really stuck in it. It is their main self-medication tool. It is their go-to. It is what they're doing. That was my story. And, and then there's this whole kind of spectrum of people who actually just look around one day and say, you know what? I think I just feel better. I think I'd just be happier. I, I just don't think this is serving me in the way that it once did. And so I'm curious about your story with alcohol, where you had fallen on that. Yeah, in some ways, I, I got lucky here. Um, so I have a real, real taste for drugs. I mean, I really, my brain responds very positively, or negatively, depending on how you view these things to things like cocaine or um, Adderall or um, Percocet. Um, ecstasy so that, that that stuff all goes down quite smoothly again this is not a good thing um but the pleasure centers in my brain all light up uh like fourth of july when those um when those compounds are introduced alcohol i never i mean i always loved that my parents were big wine drinkers i always liked the taste of wine and booze and maybe a few you know hard liquors but I wasn't really that into it. And, um, you know, I drank socially and sometimes I, especially in college, drank to excess. And uh, sometimes I would drink a lot while I was doing drugs. Um, but again, it wasn't really my, I, I actually was never that into any intoxicant until in my thirties, I discovered cocaine um, after having spent a lot of time in war zones. And then uh, as I, as my thirties marched on. So my late there, I'm almost 50 now. So about 10 years ago in my late thirties, I started to notice that every time I drank, I felt really sick and not just the next morning, like immediately. And I, I don't know if the word allergy is appropriate here, but um, I just, my body does not react well to alcohol. And given that I never liked the high that much, it was pretty easy for me to give it up. And so once in a while I will have a drink um, but it just like, I, it's always the same thing. I, I feel sick, like not the next day, although I, that too, but I also feel sick immediately. So, and, and the reason why I describe that as lucky in a way is that, you know, I have a pronounced family history of alcoholism. Um, and I've seen up close, very up close, how ugly it is, uh, or it can be, let me just say. And, um, given how powerfully addictive, given how powerful, uh, the powerful addictive tendencies in my own mind, I'm glad this is off the table. Yeah, that's, that's so great. And I think, you know, one, one thing that I find so inspiring as someone who's just like, you know what, this isn't serving me. I'm, I'm just not going to do it very much if ever. It's how, okay. So, so here you are, you know, one of the biggest names in media, you know, famous by anybody's like reckoning, living in Manhattan and and living this kind of countercultural lifestyle. Do you ever think about that or feel pressure or, and I guess you're doing it with both meditation and, you know, not doing drugs or alcohol. Well, to make me even more annoying and less fun, I'll also add that I'm also a vegan. Um, so, and that's reasonably new, but so yes, I am the lamest person in the world. Um, do I feel pressure? Uh, well, I'm a vegan kind of the way I am with alcohol, which is that, I mean, it's, 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 I'd never eat any meat, but once in a while I will have ice cream or cookie. Um, uh, 
that has dairy in it. So I'm not super militant about it and the the not wanting, and I'm not, I don't lecture other people about any of these things, uh, not alcohol, not, not veganism. It, these are just personal decisions. Uh, I am not judgmental of other people in any way. The, the vegan thing for me was just that I personally started to not want meat anymore because it just felt gross to me. But I don't look at my, I have a six-year-old who's a committed carnivore and my wife eats meat. And so the, the, I am very much not evangelical about this. About I try not to be uh, uh, um, too militant about anything. Um, including meditation, although I would call myself a meditation evangelical, but kind of like loosely. So in terms of the alcohol uh, and being on, you know, having a lot of friends and going out and, and in the city in New York, I think if I was in my 20s or 30s, it would be harder. But now I'm almost 50. And, uh, you know, I, I go out to dinner with friends or go to a cocktail party and um, or, you know, like after a shoot uh, with you know, if I'm in the field uh, with my colleagues and people go to the bar and have a drink afterwards, I'm just hanging out. I don't feel the need to ha have alcohol, but the, the need for conformity does, sh I had it strongly as a younger person, but you know, like as I head into my dotage, it's just not as big of a deal. And do you think meditation has helped with that need for conformity? Yeah, that, it doesn't erase it. Um, there are many aspects of my person, difficult aspects of my personality that are present uh, prominently <laughs> to 11 years into being a meditator. Uh, in fact, in some ways, the self-awareness that is the fruit of this kind of meditation, mindfulness meditation, the kind of meditation that I'm, of which I am a proponent, when you, you have, a, the consequences, you have a boosted self-awareness, otherwise known as mindfulness. And you see your various inner hobgoblins more clearly. And so that can create some, uh, um, what is it? There's a great expression. My, uh, there's a meditation teacher. I wrote a book with this guy, Jeff Warren. And um, he has this expression. I don't know, he might've stolen it from somebody else, but he's the one I heard it from that with meditation, things in your mind can hurt more, but you suffer less. So you feel wow. the pain of wanting to have a drink or wanting to fit in, or in my case, you know, wanting to succeed or comparing myself against other people. That's a big thing that I do. Um, I feel the pain of it, but I'm less likely to be owned by it for a prolonged period of time. So I, the suffering, I'm not adding suffering onto the acute pain of it. And I'm not, I'm doing a lot less of that, I should say. And that has really important consequences in terms of like how you are in the world with other people. And so the knock-on effects of that can be quite profound. It's kind of like the idea that uh, processed emotions or allowing things to pass will be more acute in the moment, but then they, they, they go, they don't get stuck, whatever that emotion is. That's exactly right. Um, and it doesn't work all the time. You know, I mean, there's a reason why my book and, and my podcast are called 10% Happier. I mean, uh, it's a bit of a joke, but I, I mean, it's true enough. And, and, and the point is that there's no silver bullet. And uh, so is it possible on a bad day or if I haven't had enough sleep or the stressors compound and I just am a complete schmuck? Absolutely. Like any given Tuesday that can happen. So um I don't want to present myself as uh, somehow like perfected because I'm not sure that perfection is on offer here. Yeah. I mean, 10% was what got me because it, I found it so believable, right? It was just so believable. And you've talked a little bit about the idea of that actually compounding. There's a concept that I really like called switch versus seed. So all of these things that we do in the moment to feel better, they're like a switch, right? You pour a glass of wine, it's like a switch. But if you're going to do something like meditation, it's much more like you're planting it, then you're nurturing it, then you're watering it, then you're waiting for it to grow. But eventually you've got a tree. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, you know, the, the good news here, because I used this term evangelical earlier, you know, like I kind of semi-facetiously refer to myself as an evangelical. So what does an evangelical do? An evangelist 
rather. Um, what does an evangelist do? He or she, they spread the gospel. And what does the gospel mean? Um, I mean, I think it roughly translates into good news. And so the good news here is that the mind is trainable and all of the mental qualities that we want. You know, we may think we want things like a promotion or a six pack. I mean, by, by six pack here, I'm referring to abs rather than beer, <laughs> but, but that too. Um, all of the things we think we want, a relationship, a et cetera, et cetera, they really can come down to, can be, can be reduced down to states of mind because everything is refracted through one lens, which is your mind. All of these states of mind, connectedness, generosity, compassion, calm, happiness, they're not factory settings that we're stuck with and that are unalterable. They're, they're, they're skills that can be trained. And that is really good news. Um, and by the way, you mentioned before sort of being compassionate with yourself in the process of, you know, rejiggering your relationship to alcohol. I mean, that self-compassion is a, yet another of the skills that can be trained through meditation. It's incredibly important, not just, and I know you talk a lot about the relationship to alcohol, but it, it, it's important. <laughs> in everything, you know, in your relationship to food, in your relationship to your body, exercise, um, you know, it's where, you know, as we round the corner into a new year, everybody's making these resolutions and, um, you know, are they coming from sh a place of shame or not enoughness or can it come from uh, having a sort of baseline sense of warmth toward yourself? Um, that is trainable. And it's not just like some Elysian fields that are, you know, stuff you read about in books. Actually, these are skills and the science is there to show that you can do this. Yeah, it's amazing. So two things. Well, first of all, I want to, I want to come back to the idea of resolutions, especially because we're going to air this on January 1st. So happy new year to everybody. Um, but before we do that, so what we're talking about is this idea that everything is viewed through the lens of how you experience it. And I would almost say that most things that we are motivated to do as human beings, we're motivated to do to feel a certain way. Even giving, we're motivated to do to feel as if um, we're generous or look at ourselves in a certain way through a certain lens. And so uh, I know you're working on another book too that I wanna talk about, but the book that I'm working on now really breaks down what I call the three layers of emotion. And the first is your affect. So your physicality, you know, the calmness, the energetic, not energetic, hungry, tired, all of that, the physicality, the chemicals that are going through your body, how you feel. Then the second layer is meaning, what you make those things mean. So if you're feeling, you know, anxious and you make it mean anxiety because you're about to, you know, go on a stage or something, or you can make it mean excitement. It's actually the exact same chemistry in your body. So that's meaning is a second layer. And then the third layer is judgment. So then you add suffering. It's almost this you know, other lens through which we can make meaning, but we judge ourselves. Oh, I shouldn't be anxious about this. I've gotten on this stage 10 times before. What is my problem? Why am I still feeling like this? What's wrong with me? And I like breaking it down because each of those then becomes really manageable. We can say, okay, what, what is this? How does it, you know, is it physicality? Do I just need a drink of water or a meal or some exercise? Is it meaning? Am I telling myself a story that is ridiculous and, and doesn't actually serve me? Or am I doing, by the way, which I think is the easiest to change and you've alluded to a few times with this idea of warmth towards yourself, judgment. And so when you have these three levers, I think it becomes um, a little bit easier to tackle this idea of the inner you know, you call it atmosphere, which I really like. And I think that meditation, and I'd love you to speak to this, it targets all three of those. Yes. Yeah. I like the way you break that down. Um, meditation does uh, attack all three of those. Um, and again, it's a training and there are a bunch of different kinds of meditation. There are, you know, there's straight up mindfulness meditation where you sit and try to notice the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. 
And then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And this can boost the capacity to focus on one thing at a time. And because every time you get carried away, you, you see the wildness of your own mind, you let it go and go back to your breath. That boosts a kind of self-awareness that's called meditation. I mean, sorry, sorry, that's called mindfulness. <clears throat> and the self-awareness there and the focus allow you to kind of hone in on and see clearly what's happening in your body and in your mind when a powerful emotion arises like stage fright or claustrophobia or anger or desire, craving, all of those things. And so it, this is the kind of foundational skill that would allow for what you're describing to take place more successfully. To, to, to see and disambiguate and act upon the three components of an emotion that you just described. Um, and then there are other kinds of meditation. Um, there's a kind of a, a sister practice that is taught in conjunction, traditionally has been taught in conjunction with the, what I was calling straight up mindfulness, where you just kind of pay attention to your breath and every time you get distracted, start again. There's a, um, there's a suite of practices often referred to as, um, now I'm going to get a little Buddhist on you, but they're called the Brahma Viharas or the heavenly abodes, which is going to sound, it sounds to me at least quite grandiose and um, maybe, maybe deeply annoying. Um, uh, and actually, as I described the practice, if you're a skeptic like me, it's going to sound deeply annoying. Uh, so just bear with me for a second. But basically, uh, these practices build up the capacity for friendliness or sort of warmth, compassion, which is kind of the, the ability to be sort of present for somebody else's suffering. Um, uh, and, and I won't go too far down the list of skills that they generate, but that just gives you a taste of it. And the way you generate the skill is by sitting, closing your eyes, envisioning a series of beings, often starting with yourself, maybe then a friend, uh, a neutral person, um, a difficult person, and then all beings. And then you kind of repeat phrases like, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. And when I first heard about this, it sounded like, you know, Valentine's Day with a gun to your head. It just, it's just terrible, terribly, terribly sappy. But, and this is the payoff for those of you who are still with me, there's an enormous amount of science that strongly suggests that these practices affect not only psychology and physiology, but also behavior. And that you are basically counter-programming against the inner hostility that's there towards yourself and other people. And, and that counter-programming is annoying. Just by the way, if you were an alien, if you were an alien and arrived on this planet in a gym and saw people running in place for 30 minutes at a time or systematically picking up and putting down heavy things, it would look insane and annoying. But this is what you're doing in your mind in meditation. And warmth toward yourself and other people is incredibly valuable. Um, and I think there, it's inexorably related. And again, the science bears this out. If you can have some warmth toward yourself, when you're in the throes of a difficult emotion or when you wake up the next morning after having overdone it the night before, either with alcohol or food or you know a temper tantrum or whatever, if you can have some sense of goodwill, and it doesn't have to be grandiose, it's just like a skosh north of neutrality, that is really helpful. It boosts resilience. It allows you to sort of pick back up and start again. And that transfers into your relationships to other people. And this is trainable. Again, I'm not saying it's super awesome, the training. It's, it's, it's pretty deeply annoying. Uh, but I'll just say one last thing because I feel like I'm yammering on here. But, but uh, the, I will say one last thing about these practices, which is, um, and I say this as a dev devout anti-sentimentalist who you know, doesn't even, you know, I, I really am not um, very touchy-feely. They actually feel good, these practices, after a while, once you get over the hump, especially if you're doing them in, in a concentrated way, like uh, on a retreat, a meditation retreat. 
um, that, that there can be a lot of like positive sort of body feedback sort of, which is not having done a few long retreats where all I'm doing is these practices is actually like you get a um, sort of not synthetic, no hangover version of drugs. Yeah, you start to feel really amazing. I liked that chapter in your book. You you said it was the uh, the best high you'd ever had, but the hangover came first. I think it was the <laughs> yes, yes, um, yeah. Because being on a meditation retreat sucks, so that's the hangover. <laughs> but then at some point, it stops sucking, you know. And uh, well, at some time, uh, let me just be a little bit more provisional in my language here. At some kind, at some point, it may stop sucking. Um, and you may experience really positive emotions and our bodies are wired to, you know, to, to calm and goodwill, compassion, these things like our bodies respond, can respond very well to this. And, and often it's new, you know, because we, you may see once you look at your mind with some in a sustained way that you're just up, you're just, you know, you're burning fuel that just doesn't burn clean. And uh, there are alternative sources of energy out there. Yeah, I love that. I like that a lot. And I like the idea like energy is like water. It doesn't discriminate. So if you, if you put it on, you know, the good positive warm things, they're going to grow. If you put it on that negative judgmental um, way of living, it's, it's going to be what increases. There was a study that was done. I think it was of accountants where they had to just constantly, they were auditors and they were constantly looking for mistakes and errors. And lo and behold, they started to do that in their lives. So all of a sudden they're looking for mistakes with their wives and with their kids and, you know, everywhere. And so what you're describing is actually a practice. And I can testify to this because I do this, what you recommended in 10% happier. I like the best one is may you live at ease. I just like that. It, it resonates with me. I feel like I don't have to remember all of them. So I just have that and I anchor to it whenever something really difficult is happening or someone really difficult is happening often, you know, on the internet or whatever the case, if my husband, you know, is doing something that I don't, I, I'm frustrated with or, and, and I haven't actually turned it towards myself, which during this conversation, I'm realizing that, that might be an interesting practice, but it, is helpful. It changes the posture of my heart in a way that suddenly I don't feel as much negativity and negativity is somewhat addicting because you feel negative in the moment and you feel justified. It's like beating yourself up is addicting because you feel justified. I should do this. And it's so hard for our human brain to get around the idea that actually no, the road to, even when you had a three-day bender and you know, you've gone and wrecked your car, the road to healing is not beating yourself up. And although you feel like, oh, it's justified and it's scratching this itch, that's all it's doing. It's it's not it's not creating any lasting change. Yet what you're describing, this posture of warmth and putting down the weapons of blame and shame and actually approaching yourself and others with this way of being, and I don't remember the Buddhist words for it, but I, I really like it because all the science shows, I mean, there's infinite number of studies that show that self-compassion is the path towards change. There's so many things I could say based on the paragraphs you just uttered there, which were I I, I agree with every word. Um, just to baby pick up on on self-compassion, I, I I I strongly urge you to experiment with it. Um, I because I not because of anything specific about you, but because I strongly urge everybody to experiment with it. And I say this as somebody who has resisted it hammer and tong, tooth and nail, whatever, whatever cliche you want to reach for until very recently. Um, and then I just, I just see in the laboratory of my own mind that how effective it is. And yes, and you just back it up. You can back it up with a ton of science and, and to be clear, it is not, it should be distinguished from self-compassion, which you could also describe as self-love you can distinguish, it should be distinguished from self-esteem. So it's not just, you know, the, pre, the preeminent researcher on this stuff is her name is Kristen Neff. You should also have her on the show because she's phenomenal. And I think a historic figure personally, she's at the University of Texas in Austin and has really led the charge on, on the research into this. 
she has a partner in crime named Chris uh, Germer, who both of these people have been on my podcast repeatedly. In fact, Chris Germer is, I'm doing a special series of podcasts about, you know, self-compassion around the new year. And Chris is one of my guests. Um, but I, I think you, they both be great guests for you. Um, you know, Kristen Neff often, you know, invokes that the old Saturday Night Live um, sketch with the now um, somewhat controversial um, former Democratic Senator Al Franken, who used to be a comedian, um, uh, had a character who like stared himself and stared at himself in the mirror and said, you are, you know, I can't remember what he said, it's like, you're great and God darn it, everybody loves you, you know, something <laughs> like that. Um, Stuart Smalley was his name. Um, and that's that's not what self-compassion is. It's not, you know, telling yourself you're awesome. It's not ego in that sense. It's having some warmth toward yourself, wanting the best for yourself, motivating yourself with a sense of, of wanting the best as opposed to shame. Um, and again, study after study shows we're more likely and this is very relevant around on, on this New Year's Day, um, we're more likely to stick to our goals if we're motivated with that warmth, the self-compassion, self-love, than, than if we're motivated by shame or self-laceration, self-hatred. It's just like a coach, you know, um, uh, you know, would you want a coach who's screaming at you? Or would you want a coach who says, yeah, yeah, you could do better, but I believe in you. Um, and it's just, it's, it's intuitive in some ways, once you frame it that way. And, and so some people worry that it's going to be somehow self-indulgent or ego, egotistical. I think we've uh, knocked that down. The other worry that people have is that it's going to lead to sloppy resignation. But again, the science shows over and over again that that's not true. In fact, the reason why most of us fail at our resolutions double quick, um, you know, by the end of this week, is because we're we're coming from the wrong stance. Yeah, and I, I think that that's one of the things, you know, not to toot my own horn, but that really sets this naked mind approach apart is that it is firmly based in positive emotion. And Dr. B.J. Fogg from Stanford, he just came out with this decade-long kind of meta-study where he said, you know, it's not how long you do something, the 21 days, the 60 days, the 90 days, that, that actually isn't habit formation. The key catalyst to habit formation is how you feel about it. If you feel positive about it, the likelihood of you continuing to do it is so much, so much stronger. Um, one other thing on what you just said that I, I found really interesting in my own life is I initially approached self-compassion in that way, almost the you know post-it approach where you take something positive write it on a bunch of post-its. You are successful. You are amazing. Put it all over your bathroom mirror. And then all of a sudden I just found myself angrier and uh, came to realize that what I was doing was actually creating like this inner fight, this cognitive dissonance or neural toxicity around the fact that I didn't believe it. I thought it was BS, <laughs> quite frankly. So I'm more or less having an argument because I'm trying to force something into my mind that I don't actually believe, you know, and, and that doesn't work. Yeah, I think, you know, it might work for some people and actually it might work for some people in a way that wouldn't be egotistical. It's more just like a counter programming against some of the more noxious messages you're getting from various, you know, inner characters in your mind. But it sounds like it wasn't working for you and it wouldn't work for me either. It sounds a little, for me, it would feel a little sort of disingenuous. I think what I'm referring to here and what the scientists around self-compassion are refer referring to is is more just a basic warmth, sort of activating, we're mammals, you know, and like mammals survive by, you know, we have these extended childhoods, so we need to be raised and then raise our children, ra be raised by our parents and then raise our children for a long period of time. So we have this caregiving wired into us. Uh, and so you're just kind of activating this very natural capacity to care about yourself. And it doesn't have to be, uh, it really does not have to be that sappy. I mean, there's a great um, legendary meditation teacher by the name of Mingyur Rinpoche, um, 
from the Tibetan lineage uh, who lived in Kathmandu in Nepal. Uh, and he's been on my podcast a couple of times. And he's in one, in one of those appearances, he argued that basically everything you do, every shift in your chair is self-love. You are trying to take care of yourself to relieve an itch, uh, some sort of back pain. Um, even the self-laceration is self-love. It's just unskillful. You know, you're you're trying to get to do the best for yourself. You're just doing it unwisely. And so you're just tapping into that. And I'm trying to sort of sort of hopefully, helpfully define the whole concept of self-compassion or self-love down so that it's it seems you know um doable as opposed to annoying and otherworldly and impossible and maybe even unwise. Yeah, well, one of the things that, you know, very practically that you, well, there's three really practical things that, that you talk about. One is the idea of hugging your dragon instead of slaying your dragon. So just this idea that like the brain is going to do what the brain does. It's going to look for survival. It's going to avoid pain. It's going to seek pleasure. Unfortunately, it's going to get very confused because there are certain things that allow us to do that that are very addictive. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to do what it does. And so saying, okay, well, instead of trying to overcome that, you're going to hug it. And then you also talk about these ideas of, of one minute counts and daily-ish. So again, these are really practical ways you, you allow for kind of this warmth or compassion. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's, I'll attack them one by one. Maybe I'll stop after each one in case you have a question. Um, Cause each, each require a little bit of explanation, but so Hug the dragon, as you mentioned before, I'm, I'm writing a book about, I'm writing a next book, uh, sort of a sequel to 10% Happier actually. Um, and it's, I'm, 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 not, <laughs> I'm not setting my sights low, which is turning out to be difficult because I'm, I'm taking on a big topic, which is love. Um, and hopefully talking about it in a different way because I think love has been ground into meaninglessness and cliche through you know Hollywood and Bon Jovi songs and whatever um and I think the, uh, the key unlock here for having more love in your life which again is just <laughs> uh, the Beatles were, I love the Beatles I think they were probably wrong when they said love is all you need I mean you also need like uh, trips to the dentist and um you know like a house and there, there are lots of other things you, you need, but, but um, love is incredibly important. And you probably from what I can tell from looking at the research into human flourishing, like the most important variable um, to our happiness. And it, I think the key unlock in my experience, um, and this can work differently for different people is self-love or self-compassion just have and again this is not like string music and white light it's really just basic warmth and one of the things that i've seen in my own mind um as i look at it uh, in a sustained way through meditation and therapy and lots of other modalities is that there's a lot of really ugly stuff in there you know for me it can be kind of a selfishness and ambition and avarice um uh, an ill will, like a, a, a judge being judgmental of other people, um, wanting to vanquish them and competition. You know, I can see a lot of uh, sort of anger coming up, fear, lots of stuff. Um, and uh, the great, the great meditation, another great meditation te teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh once said that anybody who looks at their mind long enough will ultimately see Hitler. You know, and this mm -hmm. is this is, you know. I have not seen Hitler, but you know, you see, you you see lots of things that are not that are humiliating. Frankly, mm -hmm. it is better to see them than not to see them because when you don't see this stuff, it owns you. It's driving you. You have no invisibility, and it's it's owning. It's driving you in a sort of blind fashion. Once you do see it, though, how are you going to react to it? Um, traditionally, when we see our difficult, the difficult aspects of our nature, desire for booze, whatever it is, we feed it, just kind of go with it, or we fight it, or we just kind of numb out and pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. It turns out that 
you know, we have this notion in Western individualistic society that we we should be slaying our dragons. But that's that hostility is just the fighting it, you know, which it, it turns out the more you fight these things, the stronger they become. So the counterintuitive radical disarmament that I've noticed is that if you just hug the dragon, welcome your anger into the party, recognize that in my case, like my little angry voice is trying unskillfully to protect the seventh grader who got punched in the stomach while waiting to, you know, get to the water cooler after basketball practice. And, um, you know, since then has had to armor up and protect himself in a hostile world, you know, and that when I, when I notice, oh yeah, yeah, I'm starting to like, I'm about to be a dick. Um, some percentage of the time I can be like, oh yeah, that's just, I've named the voice Robert after my curmudgeonly grandfather, um, who, who could be a, a dick sometimes. Um, yeah, so this is Robert trying to, you know, protect me, but I don't, I, I don't need to go with this right now. I welcome Robert into the party. Thank you. Uh, have a seat but I can make a wise decision here based on, I'm not that seventh grader double, doubled over at the water uh, uh, fountain. Um, I'm a grown up, and I can make a better decision right now. And that warmth has been transformative for me. And I feel like it's the unlock of a virtuous cycle that the warmer your own inner weather is, the kinder, you will be to other people, the better your relationships will become. And again, we know that relationships are perhaps the most important variable for happiness. And the better your relationships are, the warmer your inner weather becomes, and then your relationships get even better, and then your mind gets even calmer, and then your relationships get even better, and upwards and upwards. Now, I want to be clear, it's not like an endless efflorescence of positivity and goo. You know, I still have bad days where my winter weather is shitty and I'm a, uh, an asshole and, and then I have a downward spiral, but I'm increasing the capacity in my own mind through meditation practice and therapy and other modalities to have, to unlock this inner cycle because this positive um, upward spiral, because I am, and in my experience, it starts with hugging the dragons instead of running away or fighting them or pretending they're not there. Does that, does any, everything I just said make sense? Cause I'm still kind of working on this thesis and oh, I, it's I, yeah. Phenomenal. It's yeah. I mean, it's just so, so helpful and useful to, to be able to put it in that context, al allowing yourself to give it frame and language because it does feel so abstract. Everybody is talking about self-love and, and, you know, people have all of, all of these miss, just bad ideas of what that means. And, and, and they're so, it's almost like an aversion for a lot of people, myself included. And so what you're saying actually says, oh, okay, I get that. I can understand that. I can use that. I can apply that. And I can, I can take that into even naming it. I mean, I think, you know, that's, that's just so great and inviting it to the party, allowing it to sit with you, um, you know, not trying to vanquish it because the truth is that these things are going to be here. And not only are they going to be here, but there are things that are built into our mind evolutionarily for our survival. So it's not mm -hmm. like they're going away anytime soon. You know, some of our desires for being, um, you know, not being left out for, you know, even our egotistical desires in the traditional sense of the word ego are very much for, to survive and, and yes. to, you know, continue on. And so to have acceptance of that in this very practical way, yeah, I think it's, I think it's phenomenal. I think this is going to be like one of the most important New Year's Eve podcasts that has ever been. So thank you. That's just really great. Especially, you know, right now when we're, the temptation is to go into 2021 and just set yourself a bar by which you're not going to, you're actually going to invite more negativity, right? Um, so yeah, the, the next two daily-ish and, and just one minute, I'd love you to talk about as well, because especially going into the new year, I think they're so helpful when you construct your own goals. So thank you. Uh, I, um, at, at this time of year, one of the goals that people may have is to start a meditation practice, um, 
which I think is a great goal. Um, but again, it can get tangled because we um, set the bar too high or we're coming from a place of like, you're broken, you need to fix this immediately. Um, so I like to kind of set the bar lower. Um, and so one minute counts is one of the little slogans I have, which is that it's kind of self-explanatory. You don't need to dive in and do 20 minutes twice a day, although if you can, great. Um, but you know, for many of us, we feel time starved and um, it, and habit formation is just really hard. Actually, just as a brief aside, just knowing that habit formation is really hard is really helpful because that can help you set the bar low and help you get back on the wagon when you fall off. Um, we are we did not evolve. Evolution didn't didn't care about you know whether you had healthy habits. It just cared about you getting your DNA into the next generation. So we're like really good at threat detection and finding sexual partners and food. Um, not so good, you know, evolution wasn't like awesome at like getting us to floss our teeth. And so, so just knowing that is really helpful. And so one minute counts is like, yeah, do, do a minute. Um, and, you know, maybe that one minute will turn into two and maybe it will turn into five. And like, you know, if I think, I think if you're doing five to 10 minutes, most days, you'd be deriving many, if not most of the, the benefits that are advertised through the scientific literature. And that, that kind of leads nicely into the next thing, which is daily-ish. I, I, you know, I think if you say you're going to do something every day, you bear down and I'm going to do this, inevitably you will miss a day. And that will be the opportunity for the, a voice in your head, one your ego or whatever to swoop in and say, well, you, you're failed. You're a failed meditator. You know, I'm out. Um, and so let's alleviate that possibility by saying daily-ish. Uh, which provides for some sort of elasticity, psychological flexibility, which um, I think there's evidence that suggests that, that that can boost resilience in the face of just like the unrelenting tide of habit that pulls you away from creating these healthy habits. Wow, it's so good and so important. And one thing I'll add is I really like to set intention instead of behavior-based yes. resolutions personally, yes. because then you can hold the how loosely. Like maybe it isn't five minutes a day, but if you set this like behavior-based, I'm going to sit on you know, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, then you invite that shame where if you set an intention, you know, I want to become more mindful of my inner climate and I'm going to try this in a variety of ways. I can hold that how I do it a bit more loosely and allow that the intention actually can come through because we all set just these behavior-based goals and, and they may or may not get us closer to where we want to go. Although I will say that meditation is one that I pretty much guarantee you will get you <laughs> further along this path uh, than you are right now. You know, on to pick up on that point, um, uh, I got a, I mentioned that, that over on my, my podcast, we're doing a whole series of um, sort of new year's um, uh, themed uh, episodes. And one of the guests, I don't know if this interview will have been I think it's going to post in a few days from from January 1st. But one of the guests we're, we're interviewing as part of this series is Lori Santos, who's the host of her own podcast, which is also excellent. It's called The Happiness Lab. Uh, Lori is a professor at Yale, um, and she was she's done a lot has taken a deep dive into the research around resolutions. And one of the things that she said that really um, kind of fits nicely with what you just said is that around this time of year, we're, we're often setting resolutions around, I want to change the way my body looks or the, my, the way my financial statements look or um, whatever. But in fact, if you, if you choose mental states, you know, I'm going to be more present or I'm going to have more self-compassion, you're more likely to stick with it. And then the sort of more tactical um, you know, six pack style resolutions for I'm going to hit CrossFit seven days a week type resolutions can flow out of that. And that to, to, to me, that's why I consider, and this is the big theme of the podcast series I'm running right now. And also we'll talk about um, doing a whole meditation challenge on the, on the 10% happier app. The big theme of it is that, that self-compassion 
trained traditionally through meditation is like the uber habit. It's kind of like upstream from all the other habits. If you can create a mindset that is, again, it's not, it doesn't have to be dramatic. It's just like a little bit north of neutral toward yourself. If you can create that habit, everything else can flow from that. And I, again, this is backed up in the research and it's just backed up in my own experience. I've just seen, I don't have such a fraught relationship to alcohol, but I do have a fraught relationship to food. And, um, and this is a funny thing to say, because I'm very slim, um, but I, I can overdo it, um, especially on sugar. Um, and I've just seen over and over again, if, if I, um, and I also get on myself about there, I, I, I've mentioned six pack abs over and over again, because that's one of the things that I've long wanted. And I've just seen that if I switch the arrow of causality to, um, I'm going to start in, I'm not going to respect and appreciate my body once I get uh, perfect eating habits and a six pack. I'm going to start with respecting and appreciating my body. Then things can flow from there. Um, and maybe I'll get the six pack or maybe I'll not eat a whole sleeve of Oreos. Um, but no matter what, I'm going to have more peace of mind and be grateful for this, you know, reasonably well-functioning organism that I've inherited. Uh, for now, um, instead of walking around in a state of, of lack. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I think it's really tied into the idea we were talking about before about everything being viewed through your mind state and everything we do to feel a certain way. And there's another study that comes to mind that says, you know, pretty much definitively, we look externally to find happiness, but the science says that 90% of our happiness is internal. It's really based on how we feel. So that example of actually, okay, well, if I achieve peace, wouldn't that be better than the six pack abs? Because why are you trying to have the six pack abs anyway? I mean, ultimately to achieve some sense of peace, right? right. Like, and so if you, if you flip, like you said, the arrow um, of causality a little bit and say, okay, well, what, what actually do I want here? Because all these things, all these external things that might be the mechanisms or the tactics to get the outcome. I mean, they can be fluid, they can change. And actually they're much better dictated when we have the end goal in mind that is a mind state as you said Lori talks about which I, I just love that that makes so much sense well said that's awesome well let me ask you a final question and I just appreciate your time so much this has been just wonderful I, I love it so um if you could go back in time and tell Dan premeditating how his life has changed in the last 11 years what would you tell him Man, I would have that be a tough conversation because that guy was, you know, <laughs> not not psyched about this whole uh, area that I've now like now made basically my life. I, I, I that guy would have been really skeptical that I mean, I was doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on TV news. And now I've still love TV news and still quite active in it. But, you know, I, that I am spending so much of time and effort on, on meditation, not only as a practice, but also as, you know, a podcaster and a, somebody who has a meditation app, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would have been a hard conversation to have with uh, the pre-meditation me. But I think the way I would describe what happened, what I would, I, would, I would point out to that person that you are doing an enormous amount of suffering. You know, you're walking into your, home at the end of the day with your I guess then fiance scowling you know because you're stressed out about work and comparing yourself to all these people you're competing against and you know trying to um, move up the ladder and that's just it's metastasizing into every aspect of your life and I'm not saying you should take your foot off the gas in terms of your career. I'm not saying you shouldn't be ambitious, but can you be a little less sweaty about it? Can you see that there's a point where the worrying and stressing and plotting and planning you're doing, which is necessary, can you see that at some point it passes the point of diminished returns? And, um, and that you can 
you can reorient the whole operation from, um, you know, kind of a self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement to a, um, to a completely different set of uh, motivations. It does, that doesn't take self-interest off the table, but puts self-interest within a larger framework of uh, you being connected to other people and, and the world, frankly. And so that's all the same thing at some point. You know, you, my desire for my own success um, doesn't have to be so tight and constricted and, and related. In some ways, I'm, I'm talking to my current self too, because I still fall into this. Uh, doesn't always have to be tangled up in uh, greed. It can be that, you know, your the desire for you wanting the best for yourself is not separate from wanting the best for everyone around you and ultimately everyone who exists. Um, it's all the same thing. Like love, this, that's what love is, right? Again, defined down, hopefully usefully. It's omnidirectional. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't, uh, and we, we've, we've got it twisted. Um, I've got it twisted still. And definitely the me from 11 years ago had that twisted. And so, yes, that's the pep talk I would give to the old version and the current version of me. Yeah, I, I love that because one of the things that you said just about um, worry and anxiety is you said this on, on Tim Ferriss's podcast. You just said at, at some point you have to ask yourself, is it useful? Yes. So, and I think that's so helpful because it's probably what, like 5% that is useful because it, it does motivate us to, to some degree, but then very quickly it just becomes a spiral. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, so that, that, was, that was great. And you have in, on January 4th, so just a few days, is a free meditation challenge for 21 days. Yeah, I was just talking about that a little bit um, earlier. We, so I, I, one of the many sort of iterations of 10% Happier is it's also now a meditation app. Um, and uh, aside from being a book and a podcast, it's also a meditation app. And on that app, um, starting January 4th, we're doing a free thing. So if you download the app and sign up, it's totally free. Um, where for 21 days, we're going to do a meditation challenge. And the goal is to meditate daily-ish. So for like 15 out of the 21 days. And we're with the real thrust here is that we're going to teach you meditation uh, with two goals. One is we're going to teach meditation uh, designed to help you boost your self-compassion. And two, we're hopefully in the process of doing this for three weeks, daily-ish you will have a meditation habit booted up at the end of it. And so you'll have both a meditation habit and a self-compassion habit booted up. Um, and so every the way the challenge works is every day you get a little bit of video of me talking to a great meditation teacher for a few minutes, just like two, three minutes. Um, actually on a few of the days of the challenge, we, we got this guy Karamo who's from uh, Queer Eye on Netflix, um, who's a big proponent of self-love. So he comes on for a few days. And so after and you get a little bit of video and then it slides into a guided meditation that's only like five to 10 minutes long. Um, and so the idea is, that, and if you sign up, you can sign up with other people and track their progress and you know, trash talk them about not uh, doing it every day, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you can follow me and my progress. And so the idea is that hopefully it's a fun way to start the new year doing what I've been exhorting people to do, which is make the habit, go for the uber habit, the upstream habit of self-compassion, and then let the abs and the, and the whatever else you want to do flow out of that. I love that. And I did your very early course with you and, and Joseph Goldstein. It was awesome. My husband and I did that together and really kicked off my own practice, which was was great. And um, so that's all in the app. So I'm going to be doing it. I encourage everybody who's listening to do it. It's, it's, there's nothing, I think no better, like you said, Uber habit than this. And it just strikes me to end on is that, you know, as you personally, Dan, hold things lighter and looser, uh, you are becoming infinitely more successful. So I just think that's, that's a really profound lesson that you know, you're teaching us not verbally, but just through your journey in your life. It's very cool. Yeah, I, that's still an ongoing 
dialogue in my own head <laughs> because I can get stuck. I mean, that's this is like a big area of that I'm working with. Of, uh, but I think the general thrust of your comment is right that the more I, in some ways, relent, the better things go because I'm less tight around it, less sweaty about it, and um, I I apply this wisdom. I will say imperfectly. That's very cool. Well, thank you so much. It's just been awesome. I really appreciate your time and profound podcast. I think it's just going to be so helpful. I really appreciate it. Well, you, Annie, do a great job of creating an, an atmosphere of warmth. It's been a pleasure to sit and talk to you. Awesome. Hi, I'm so excited, you guys, because we are just about to start another live alcohol experiment. And if you do not know about the alcohol experiment, you need to literally drop everything right now and go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash LAE. That's LAE for live alcohol experiment. And here's the thing. This 30-day challenge is designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with the best version of you. You know it's that version that's living the most joyful life, that version that doesn't need alcohol to relax or have a good time and that version that's having more fun and is more peaceful than ever again it's a 30-day challenge it's live it's starting on the first so hurry up go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash lab and as always rate review and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today 